Hey, Jesse Paul Smith here, My Creative District Podcast, and super excited to get into this conversation. I sit down with Larry Shapiro, CEO of Ensemble Digital Studios. He has worked with some of the big name influencers that you might recognize in this conversation, but he got his start uh, producing a music video for the band, The Beastie Boys. I sit down and talk about that experience and how it shaped his trajectory into the digital creative space and working in the entertainment industry. You have got to listen to this. We talk about everything from the entertainment space to why building an audience is absolutely crucial and how to do it the right way. Let's get right to it. Welcome to another episode of the My Creative District podcast, where we discuss how to channel your creative power into building the life you want, building the business you want, and making the impact you want. We believe creatives can live out a passionate and fulfilled life when they completely embrace their unique design and purpose. Want to turn your passion into profit? Stay tuned to hear from industry professionals, paradigm shifters, and world changers who have done just that and live it every day. This is the My Creative District podcast with your host, Jesse Paul Smith. Hey, Larry, so thankful that you were able to make some time to jump in today and uh, looking forward to this conversation on our show, my friend. My pleasure. Anytime, Jesse. I'm uh, looking forward to it as well. So I, I want to dive right in. Uh, you've got some uh, crazy extensive experience in the entertainment space, particularly just kind of blending the, you know, the creative uh, media from all forms and helping people, you know, create brands and, and build the business around their passion for entertainment. So, but I, I always like to get into some context, like was being in the entertainment space, so to speak, was that kind of like what you always wanted to do or how did you fall into that? I always wanted to be in the entertainment space. I went to college as a theater major at University of Michigan. And then in my second year, I took a film course and the professor let me be a production assistant on a Robert Altman film. And... I was a set production assistant on this Robert Altman film called Secret Honor, starring Philip Baker Hall. And once I saw behind the scenes and watching Robert Altman direct and having the honor to be on set with someone, a director who was as amazing as he was, I was like, that's it. <laughs> I'm, going, I'm going behind the camera. And I, I transferred to NYU Film School and I finished out my studies at, at NYU Film. And um, it's interesting because going through film school, you're studying Hollywood in the 20s and the, the era of silent pictures and all these great filmmakers, you know, Charlie Chaplin and, and, and Max Sennett and all these, all these filmmakers of the, of the early days. And you're like, wow, I wish I was in Hollywood during the 20s. And I always looked for those moments because I'm a blue waters kind of guy, right? I, I don't like swimming in bloody waters, like in chum filled waters in any business. I, I always look for the, the blue, the blue waters, like swim where, where the, you know, fish where there are no other people fishing, um, but find the fish. And so that's kind of the, the type of person I am and have always kind of, done that in my career. And I guess I got my first experience with that 
when it literally started my senior year of college. And in order to graduate NYU, you had to do your senior film. You had to do a, a project. And I always liked, I was never a director, but I loved producing. And so I had my partner director, his name is Sean Travis, and we were trying to figure out what our senior project was going to be. And we, um, you know, we were like looking and we were looking through old scripts that we had written in class and we were trying to, you know, knock around some ideas. And finally he calls me and he says, hey, this guy on my dorm floor, literally the, the next room over, you know, he, he fancies himself as a music guy and he wants to, you know, ultimately he wants to be a, a, a record person, but he's actually got money for uh, a band that he's managing and he wants us to make a music video. And we're like, great. You know, it's like, if he's got money, then that's what we're doing. Cause as a film student, you know, we couldn't rub two nickels together. So we go over to uh, you know his dorm, his dorm neighbor Rick, and and we're we're sitting down with Rick and we're talking, and you know he says, yeah, you know I got these three kids and they want to be rappers, and you know I got some money to to make a music video for them, and we're like, all right, cool, yeah, and we started talking about the ideas and the kind of the song that it was, and um, I was like, all right, three white kids rapping. Well, yeah, sure. You got the money. We'll make it. Right. And Rick and Sean knew each other. And so that was really cool. And so uh, we're walking out. We're walking out of his room. And I turn. I said, wait, what do they call themselves? What, what's what's the band's thing? Because I got to start, you know, doing these things. And, I, and I, obviously we got to meet him and stuff like that. And um, he says, uh, they, they call themselves the Beastie Boys. So... Um, and, and that was my, that was the first time I met Rick Rubin. So Rick, who started Def Jam Records out of his dorm room at NYU. That is incredible. So I've got to ask, cause there's a couple of things that you talked about that I, I really want to, I want to get into your whole blue water fishing is very much in line with this concept that I've, I've really heard a lot of people talk about this. Um, you are a performer and the, figure out different ways to use skill sets that you have to um, be able to align yourself with people and the type of work you want to do outside of just your creative bend. But, you know, you mentioned the fact that you were a theater student. So when you were dreaming about like the entertainment space, were you ever wanting to be the front guy or did you always want to be behind the scenes? I wanted to be an actor, right? And I got to a point in, in my studies where you come across of vulnerability, right? When you're an artist, and this is why I love artists and, and have so much appreciation for them because it was something I could never do, right? When you're an artist and you're studying, there becomes, you hit this threshold of vulnerability where you just have to let yourself go. And you just have to say, hey, here I am, naked and out there, and that's me. And uh, as an artist, I was always double guess you know i was thinking twice i was like all right well you know I, will they judge me will i think i'm like this if i take this role or if i do this or you know it's not really me and you can't be like that as as an artist if, if you're in front of that camera you just have to bear your soul and i think i had trouble doing that and i realized when i was on set with you know on a 
film with Robert Altman and you're looking and you're watching and you're seeing how he works with the actors and how he works with the crew and how he just helps. And then his producer, Scotty Bushnell, she was amazing and just watching her just orchestrate everything. And what I loved about being on set was there were so many different kinds of artists, whether you were an art director, whether you're a key grip, whether you're a gaffer, DP, you know, it was literally, a, it was a dance, right? To get that shot, everyone has to be working in a way and they have to trust each other as well. And I just thought that that was so much fun. And so I was like, all right, I'm going behind. I'm, I'm going to help. I'm going to connect dots and I'm going to empower people and work with artists and, and help them achieve what their goals are and, and put these productions on. So that's, that's where I was like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. And then the other thing was, where do you do it? Which is why I was like, okay, music videos back when I was going to school, right? Back in the day, music videos was our social media. And that's where all the kids were. And that's where all the cool stuff was happening. And that's where all the, the kids who didn't have parents in the industry or weren't in the industry, it was the Wild West. It was Hollywood in the 20s. Music videos of the 80s was Hollywood of the 20s. And it was an art form that was reaching the youth. And it was an art form that had a voice. And I made this music video for the Beastie Boys in college. And that was kind of like, all right, you, you produce the music video. You can get a job now. You can go out to Hollywood and, and call people up and, and get a job and start working. And I was very fortunate enough to <clears throat> my, my second entree into music videos was being a production assistant on a Janet Jackson music video called Let's Wait a While. And it was, we shot on a rooftop in February in New York. And I've never been so cold. And I'll tell you, it was unbearable. But that company was a company called Propaganda Films. And I, when I came out to LA to visit some friends, I call, happened to call up the producer uh, who did that music video. And that's the whole key of networking, right? It's just like, you never know. And I called up the producer, Howard Wolfenden, said that I was in town. He said, hey, you know, Dom is uh, Dom's shooting another video. Have you ever been an AD? And I was like, I was an AD once in school. I was like, but I was a PA for ADs. I was like, yeah, I've AD'd before. And so, and so I came on and I AD'd a music video. I forgot the band, but the director was Dom Senna. And he was a big music video director. And this company... Propaganda Films, they had all these young directors who couldn't get arrested in town. And I mean, arrested in Hollywood. They were, they were making all these crazy, wacky things called music videos. And so I just started working there freelance, but I literally was freelancing there for like eight years. I mean, Propaganda Films at the time was such an amazing thing. And what was great was it was music videos. They were, again, Hollywood of the 20s, and all these young artists were coming in and, and making their name by making these music videos. And I used to 
AD for directors like David Fincher. I produced Michael Bay's first music video. And I was Antoine Fuqua, who's the director who did Training Day and Equalizer. I was his producer for a number of years. And it was, it was so much fun. And I gave Rosie Perez her first job as a choreographer. Okay? She was a choreographer for an El DeBarge video. Um, I was an AD on Steve Winwood. The video was Roll With It. And it was directed by David Fincher. And we, and we were shot in this little small diner with this big Luma crane. It was this whole big dance number. And I remember, uh, you know, it's like, Jen, okay, where, where's the choreographer? Where's the choreographer? And, you know, and then she came on, this, this woman came on. I was like, hey, I'm Larry, I'm the AD. And she says, hi, I'm Paul Abdul, I'm the choreographer. And so <clears throat> that was then. And so the cool part about it was, you know, it was, I learned early on in my career is focus on those, focus on those platforms that are reaching the youth, because once you hit them, you're going to shape their production values and they're going to grow with you. So the kids that we were, you know, making music videos for, you know, in, in the late eighties became the main buyers of Netflix when it was, you know, when, when they became consumers and adults. So we were shaping behaviors and we were shaping production values. And as artists today, the, the amazing thing, especially for dancers is dancers are the production value, right? When you have these amazing dancers and I, I'm an adjunct professor for Pace University and their commercial dance class. And I, and I lecture for, for the kids all the time. And, you know, I say to them, if you learn how to build audience, you don't need anyone to validate you on the other side, right? You have these amazing dancers like Casey Rice, who I happen to represent. Um, Isabella Fonte is another client of mine. And then there's, there's amazing dancers like Amy Marie. And there's, there's so many great dancers who have audience and have learned how to build their audience online. So what happens is now they have an audience, they can do brand deals, they can make merchandise, they can sell directly to their audience. They don't need to be cast in anything. Now you bring up a really, and I'm glad you bring this up because building an audience is the new, kind of the new talent management, right? It's instead of having to go and find your your agent, which again, there's value there in, in finding those people, but finding an audience is kind of replacing that model, so so to speak. But but I think a lot of people have misconceptions on how to build that audience. So what do you see that people need to be paying attention to when they're building that audience? Because I think the misconception is build it and they will come, meaning post a video and eventually somebody's going to find it, do the right hashtag, all that kind of stuff. So when it comes to building an audience, what do you really need to pay attention to? There's, there's a lot of things, but the first off, and everyone will tell you when you're building an audience, one of the most important thing is consistency, right? Keep pumping out the content because it's almost like starting an engine. You got to prime the engine, right? You got to prime it, prime it. And finally it'll start to spark. Finally, you'll start to hit that, the, the algorithm and start getting out there. But with, and you have to understand, you can't just follow what everyone else is doing to a certain degree. You can start, like I always say, if you're building a, a channel, 
look at who's doing it right, go back to the beginning of their feed and see how they progressed. And if there are things that are that they're doing right, copy them. It doesn't matter when you're first starting out. Because when you look at, look, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, they all started doing cover songs in, in the clubs, right? They started to get, you know, they started, they brought people in with things they were familiar with, with how they understood it. And then they said, okay, we got an original song we'd like to show you. You know, it's like you craft, you draw in an audience by giving them something they're familiar with, and then you train them, and then you train them up, and then you introduce them to, you know, Sergeant Peppers, right? You start off by doing, you know, uh, old songs and making them sound like, the, you know, some of, some of the old bands of the, of the late 50s, early 60s, and then you grow your audience into giving them something like Sergeant Peppers. So I'm curious because, uh, and I, I would love your take on this because, uh, you know, we also hear very, very often people are like, you know, be a hundred percent authentic, make sure you don't, you know, try to replicate somebody else. What you're talking about is modeling. Where does authenticity and modeling, like where's the most comfortable meeting point for that? And, and, and how does somebody know, you know, when to insert their authentic self versus when they should, you know, do a cover quote unquote of maybe a, ten, a, a trending, you know, challenge or, or whatever piece of content they're creating. Well, again, what's so amazing is this generation of artists that have grown up on social media is the first generation to have access to data, right? <laughs> so it's not just the pixie dust, it's the data that's important to becoming an artist today. And so when you're starting your channel, you, you have to hit those trends. You have to do the, the videos that everyone else is doing to get into, to get some voice, to get some, a little bit of audience, and then you're going to grow them consistently. They're going to get used to you. They're going to start to understand that who you are, and then you're going to start to bring your own authenticity into it. The, what's interesting about, especially with dancers, and sometimes what dancers don't understand, um, especially on something like Instagram. Instagram is a personality algorithm, right? So if you're so far away and you show the dancing and stuff like that, I understand it's important to do that so kids can watch the moves and learn the moves. But it's also important to show your face and, and have a close-up and do your little selfies or fun stories where you're showing your personality. You have to show the whole package, especially today. You can't just be a great dancer and, um, and not have a conversation with your audience. They have to see the whole package. And you have to also remember that audiences today have so much media thrown at them that they'll get someone immediately. They'll, they're, and they're also expecting to see those elements of their social feed, right? They want to see the cool dances. They want to see their, you know, whatever lifestyle thing they do on their own. They want to see what their stretch routine or their workout routine is on, you know, whether it's on, you know, Instagram Live or IGTV or, you know, just show me a move on Reels. They're looking for all those and their TikTok, right? So all those are really, really important. And those 
dancers who have their audience for a long time, they have to constantly, or, you know, they have to, they have to reach new audiences because a lot of times the audience will age out, right? Some of these kids will start going to college and they're like, Oh, I don't have time. But then others who grow with this person, with this performer, the more you show of who you are and explore different areas, you're going to hold that audience for a longer time. So someone like Casey Rice, um, Casey Rice does poetry and she brings her audience into her poetry. She has certain relationships with dancers that she loves working with, like Sean Liu, and the fans will go crazy over them. And then she also understands how to talk to her audience and her super fans. Casey has amazing fans who do fan art, comic books for her. It's unbelievable. And some of them are great. And that engagement is so important. That engagement is so, so important. Yeah. And I, I would agree with you. What are, what are the ways that, so you said that Casey, you know, what you, what you just said there is Casey's got like a great relationship to the point where the audience feels like they get, they get her, but she gets them because they're not going to create comic books for her if they're not feeling like there's some sort of symbiotic relationship. What are the best ways that you're seeing people right now build relationships with their audience in that manner? How can they, how can they have that backwards and forwards engagement? It's, it, the important thing is, is commenting back. First of all, you ask questions, right? You ask questions to your audience. You'll go on, you'll do, you'll work all the live components, you'll have AMAs, ask me anythings on some of the live live features of whether it's TikTok or, or Instagram or YouTube, whatever your platform is. And then you'll also give them a little bit of insight as to who you are. And you do have to, again, show that vulnerability. You do have to show that vulnerability. And someone like Casey, she built a, a, merchandise, a merchandise brand and it's called Weirdo. And it really is all about exploring um, and owning who you are, right? It's owning your own self and being unapologetic for it. And just like, look, we're all weirdos. We are, we are just all weirdos. We've all done crazy things in our life and we all put ourselves out there. And you know what? We're proud of it. And you have to embrace your own individuality. And that message really hit hard for a lot of a lot of kids growing up. And so that's, you know, that's one of the things that 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 has embraced the audience and why Casey has such a large following. And then there's there's you know, a lot of artists also gain audience by collaborations, right? You look at all the kids, you you have all the kids who are all the TikTokers who are all getting houses together and sharing audience and collabing, and then then it just becomes a reality show, right? All the drama that ensues and who's sleeping with who and who's cheating on who and who's doing you know it's like it's just like it it becomes like your own you know reality show. Uh, a lot of a lot of those TikTokers are amazing people, right? You got Charlie D'Amelio, who's just a wonderful young woman and a really smart woman. And she, and she has a personality and she engages the audience. It's not just about dancing for Charlie. Yes, 
you know, and again, I don't work with her, but I've met her once before and uh, my client Jordan Matter works with her a lot. It is about the work. I mean, they, you know, a lot of these kids, they work their tails off. A lot of these kids, they work their tails off. Charlie has a personality that is very infectious, right? She's got that killer smile. She's just a good person and she engages her audience and the fans love it. And they just, she just hit that algorithm and everyone fell into it. And then you have her sister and then the whole family gets involved. And it's now like the the next generation of Kardashians. Now, let me ask you this, because I think collaborations is, is, I would agree is that's a big part of that, you know, reaching the new audiences you're talking about. But let me ask you this, is there a strategy behind that? Because I think a lot of times people are like trying to collaborate with the big names because they think if they hit the big names, then obviously that's going to change their audience and all this kind of stuff. But there's got to be a, a, a smart way of going about collaborations. And what are you seeing is the smartest way of going about that, especially if you're just starting out or, you know, you're at that, you're at that smaller following, right? Two to 5,000 followers on your Instagram or, or TikTok where you're not blowing up, but, but yet you can still engage in that collaboration. What's the, what's the strategy behind that? It has to be a relationship. And when you're, when you're collaborating, the, the trick of the collaborations is you have to share audience. Right. Your audience, your demographics to a certain degree has to there has to be that that intersection of your audience. And so that way you're going to share and then you're going to germinate and and start populating each other's audiences from the collaborations. But there also has to be the relationship with collabs. There has to be a reason of why. It's all about the why, right? Why am I collabing? What are we going to do? How cool is it? And how? And it has to be not just for audience growth. It has to be for the fans. They have to really in, in, involve it. And what's amazing about collaborations is it's, it's not a new concept, right? It's not a new concept, collaborations in entertainment. And like, who are the popular collaborations in other mediums that you know. The Rat Pack, Sinatra, Sammy Davis, Dean Martin, they were all collabing with each other. They'd all show up at each other's shows, right? Then you have the Brat Pack from the 80s, right? All the kids in all the John Hughes movies, right? Then you have the, then you have the alumni from Saturday Night Live, right? All those groups, right? Um, they're all collaborators. Those are great examples of collaborations that, you know, that have happened in Hollywood and, um, you know, and they work, right? All the alumni from different generations of, of Saturday Night Live, those are, you know, those are all people who are into it. I think one of the things that you're talking about that's important to realize too is the collaboration isn't about a transaction, it's about a relationship. And I think that's the that's the important part there because I think so many people are looking at it for what it can do for me and my build how it can build my how it can build my social media audience. And what you're talking about really is 
how do we, because the Rat Pack and stuff, those guys all hung out. Those guys were all, you know, when there wasn't business happening, they were hanging out outside of that. And I think that's the, the big missing piece that people are, are just looking for the fastest way to growth when really that's just focusing on yourself and how it's going to help you instead of, you know, you talking about the fact that the audiences need to collide. They need to match. Right. And they, what's great about it is they almost create a mythology around it, right? The, the Rat Pack had that mythology. It wasn't just about the relationships then. Then it became about their style. Then it became about where that they were like, you know, influencers, right? And, um, you know, same thing with the Brat Pack, right? And another, another great group of collaborators who, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of is Christopher Guest, right? He always works with those actors, right? Whether it's, you know, Harry Shear or Michael McKean, you know, it's like, these are all, you know, he works with all the, the, you know, the same actors, Fred Willard, you know, it's like, they're, they're all in his movies and they all just do things together and they're there for each other. And that's great. And that, and, and then people take it, people can enter the franchise from so many different doors. Yeah, one of the things that you talked about too that I would love to to understand a little more is you said the data, right? I, I and and I would agree that the data isn't something that I think about when it comes to, you know, any kind of content, whether it's YouTube, you know, Instagram. When you talk about data, what are data points that you know that people should be paying attention to that they're just simply not even thinking of? Well, there's a couple of things. Number one is not just the data in your own analytics, but the data that's coming off of trends, right? I know so many creators who start the week looking at Google Trends, looking at seeing what people are talking about, what's happening in the world. And depending upon your style, depending upon your your kind of content, you can adapt really quickly to Google Trends and put things out there relatively quickly to hit trends. So for dancers, the easy thing is to look at who's popular, who's trending on music, right? It's easy then to look at TikTok trends, the, the clips that are trending on TikToks, and use those. And then you never know how, how things start, right? Like Paul Anka with the, the Silhouette Challenge. Who would have thought? And my family's friends with the Ankas, right? It's like he had no clue that that was going on until like his manager um, over a primary way was like, um, you're trending. Did you know that? <laughs> right. And his kids, um, obviously they're, they're on social media and, and they'll, they'll be like, uh, dad, you're, you know, you're like the hottest thing on the internet right now. And so the, like who thinks of those things. And so those are, those, you never know what's going on. You never know, but it is what was great about the silhouette challenge was, and then you you could, to a certain degree, back it out into what is trending. But that was a mashup of genres, right? That was a that was a, a remix of something, you know, of 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 put your head on my shoulder, and they made it cool. It was a genre blend. And on YouTube, genre blends are huge. Yeah, I think that's the that whole philosophy of success leaves clues, right? and 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 when you're talking about, jumping on the trends, but being aware of what is really trending. And, and there are tools out there like Google Analytics and um, Google Trends that can show you those types of things um, and, and, and help, you, help you find that. Now, 
I know that other, one well, of the things. The other data, the other, so then, you know, that's just one big, you know, Uber meta um, data point or, you know, thing, piece of data that you can look at. But then you start to look at your own channels, right? And then you start to look at what people are liking and what they're not liking. And so on your Instagram, you'll look at the, the ratios of, you know, the, well, for Instagram, you have to hit all the channels, right? You have to hit all the features in terms, you have to do reels, you have to do pick posts, you have to do Instagram TV, you have to do Instagram live, you know, it's like you hit all those features. And that's because the search page has areas for all those features. So you want to be hitting all those features to get to, to maximize whatever real estate you can on the search page to grow your audience. On YouTube, you're looking at your retention curve, right? You're looking at how long people are holding on to your videos before they stop, you know, bowing out. And then you, you start, you'll see an average. And you're like, okay, what is happening up to that moment? Where am I missing them? Where am I losing them? Do I need to shorten my videos? Do I need to change my editing? Or is it getting repetitive? Those are the things that you look at, like retention curves and your likes. And also, of course, your demographics, right? I have, I have uh, clients, you know, some of the, the, the women dancers or the, the, the younger influencers who are girls, sometimes they'll have most you know, sometimes I'll have a male audience. And so you have to look at your, your, your demographic and saying, okay, why? Well, I can see why I have a male audience, but in order for brand deals, I need to, I need to reach out to the girls. I need to reach out to, you know, the kids who want to be these amazing dancers and follow me. So maybe I won't do videos that are this way, maybe I'll lean more into my dancing. Maybe I won't do certain, you know, certain things that that you know might attract the wrong audience. Yeah, I think, and then that just gets back to knowing. I you talking about audience, also not only knowing what who your audience is, but what are you trying to do with your audience? For instance, if somebody is if somebody's wanting to sell gear with their audience, they're going to post different kinds of content than if somebody's trying to sell a course or if somebody's trying to use their Instagram as more like a uh, a reel for like brand deals to go through and check out. So I think I think also knowing Tony Robbins says this, know what your overarching outcome is going to be. What is it that you really want from whatever it is that you're trying to do? And then also like being willing to play with it because, you know, you're not going to get it right the first time. You need to be able to put different stuff out there to figure out what really hits. It's, it's all about iteration. It's, you know, the great thing about being a, a creator on social media today is it's, you know, I, I, I say it's a marathon, not a, not a sprint. I tell this story to my class because they, they want to go out there and they want to make something and they want to get millions of views and, and get Insta fame. Well, if you're in for Insta fame, then you're, you're in it for all the wrong reasons. Right. And I tell this story of this woman who was at uh, Stanford and she did this video called Dorm Diaries. And the first episode, I think it was called Black at Stanford. This was a woman of color, African-American woman. And she, um, she was at Stanford and she did this YouTube video and it was in black and white. 
And when you look at it, it's like, it was, it, it definitely had a point of view. Was it the best narrative? You know, not yet, right? But this woman just kept iterating and iterating and iterating. And that was in, I want to say it was in 2007 that she did Dorm Diaries, Black at Stanford, okay, on YouTube. And that was her first as a web series. And then she kept doing, kept doing. And then a few years later, she created a show on YouTube called Adventures of an Awkward Black Woman, okay? And then three years later, in 2017, she's nominated for a Golden Globe. And her name is Issa Rae, okay? So it's like you have to, have to just start and you have to listen and you have to watch the audience. And that's the most important thing. And when you build your audience, then you can start looking at um, brand deals. And there's so many great companies out there now that are helping influencers. There's a great company called Pietra Studios. And you go on there and literally it gives you the ability to make, you can make anything from your own coffee line to your own tea line, Pietra. And it, look, look it up. It's, uh, I want to say it's pietra.com, but, um, or you'll put it in the thing, but it's, it's a great, it's a great, it's a great platform where, you know, you can go up and down the aisles, so to speak, and and just um, and just figure out what kind of piece of um, there it is. It's PietraStudio.com. PietraStudio.com. And um, what's cool is you can go on there and you can make your own. You know, it's not just about doing sweats. You can make your own tea line. You can make your own coffee line. You can build your own jewelry and design it and get it out there. And so all these things are commoditized now. It's, you don't need Walmart. You don't need Target. You need your own audience. And once you have your own audience, there are tools out there that can help you reach them and monetize. I love that. I love that. Yeah. And it's, and, and again, audience is kind of the new management is the new representation, so to speak. Well, it's not so much the new management because, you know, uh, you need to understand how to do your brand deals and how to reach out and go for certain things. But you, you're, you, it makes you your own CEO, right? It makes you your own studio chief, right? It's like Laura Cleary, who's a client of mine, she's got over 20 million followers now. And we've had, we've had networks come to us and say, well, you know, would you be in this show, but we want to do it this way, this way, and this way, and all these controls and the internal systems of how certain networks work can be so slow because there are so many people to answer to. And look, it's just the way they are, right? They've built it up and they have so many layers. And Laura's like, wait a second, I could make something today and get it out by lunchtime and hit 20 million people. So I have better ratings than you. Do I really need you, right? And yeah, distribution channels a lot different now. Exactly, exactly. And that's, that's the thing. But then when you want to put millions of dollars into an episode, yeah, then you can you know, go to the studios and the networks and things like that. But getting there 
and communicating to them is a whole different thing. And it's one thing that I've seen younger managers um, make the mistake of where they're talking to traditional media outlets and they're saying, oh, you should work with this person because they get so many views and they have so many followers. And the mistake that is made is using that nomenclature. If you're talking to television, you have to talk the way they talk because they're, they have to sell internally, right? So you're talking to an executive and when, like I represent the king of random and we reach, we reach an audience of 18 to 35 and we reach them five times a week. And we, on average, have, on average, our videos are half a million to a million views per video, right? That's, that's, those are the numbers. If I'm talking to a brand deal, I'll say, yeah, we, we get millions of views. We get 30 million views a month and we're reaching this audience five times a week. That they get. But a, a, a television executive is like, I don't know what that means. So the way I talk to them is, look, I reach a demo of 18 to 35, and yes, I'm hitting them every day, but we're averaging half a million to a million views per video. Now that's a 0.5 to a one share five days a week. Then you talk their language. And so that way they can turn to their boss or their team and say, hey, guess what? They're hitting a 0.5 to a one share every single day on a young demographic of 18 to 35, 80% male, 20% female. That's great for the History Channel or that's great for Discovery. And they're like, then they'll turn around and say, let's do a deal. And that's all from... And that's all from getting really good at knowing who your audience is and really building, really building your audience. But it's also, it's also understanding who your buyers are and how to talk to the buyers, right? And that's the difference. That's what a manager does or an agent does um, is to help the client. But the, the, the creator, Laura Cleary, she's, yeah, she's CEO of her own company, right? Um, Jordan Matter is another one who has, you know, 20, you know, I think he's got over 15 million followers across his social platforms and he reached, and he reaches an amazing audience. And again, he does it in a way where he's, he's entertaining them, makes them feel good, but he's also teaching them a little bit about the craft as well. Cause he's not a dancer, but he, he, empower, he works with dancers, but he works with, he works with, acrobats, he works with cooks, he works with, he just works with artists, all kinds of artists. Yeah, Jordan, Jordan's a, an amazing talent. He's a, he's a cool guy. So I, I always like to ask this because, uh, you know, being in the space that you're in, you've always got cool things. What, what's, uh, what's the project that you're most excited about that's coming, on, that's coming up here for you uh, in the next couple of weeks? There's a, there's a couple of them. The, um, I'm, I'm producing a TV show for a network, which I can't mention with the King of Random. And what I love about that deal is we're producing it. I'm one of the producers, but the channel itself is the production company. And what's great about that is a lot of times people, uh, networks will be like, well, if you want to do a TV show, especially in the reality side, you need 
you need a production company who's, who's done it. That can be the case sometimes, but I think what we're finding is that television networks are starting to understand that a lot of these channels, a lot of these creators are producers within themselves and they're producing content for an audience and they're shaping the production values of a new generation. These, these creators, even you, Jesse, you're creating content for Gen Z. You're shaping a generation, right? And so those kids are going to grow up and be the next generation of streamers paying $14, $15, $20 a month to watch that particular network. So again, I started in music videos and I tell this story all the time. And I apologize if your audience has heard this before, but in 1989, there was a young, a young music video director who did a video for a band called Loverboy. And the song was called Notorious. And you should watch it. It's a great music video. And the cool part about it is the band doesn't even sing in the video. Like, you know, it's a great song and stuff like that. But when, you know, the director did it and it was just all about style and all about cool. And that was in 1989. And the main audience for that was probably about 15, you know, 15-year-old, 16-year-old kids, notorious. And that video in 1989 won the best music video for that year. And so those 15, 16-year-old kids who are watching that video, who were shaped by the coolness and the style and the rhythm of that director who couldn't get arrested in Hollywood in 1989, those kids grew up and those are the kids who are paying $15 a month to watch, you know, that, that show that really was the tipping point for Netflix, House of Cards, right? Those kids were the 40-year-olds who were then paying to watch House of Cards. And House of Cards was produced and directed by David Fincher. And David Fincher was that young music video director who directed that Loverboy video. And so that's the thing. And that's the opportunity that these artists in social media today have. And you got to remember, you have more technology in your, in your cell phone than Orson Welles had making Citizen Kane. And the whole world is democratized now in terms of entertainment, right? It's like, I can make something, I could put it out and reach and build my own audience. I don't need to be validated by a studio exec or, or, a movie, or a movie exec, a network exec or a studio exec. I can build an audience and I could write my own rules. I don't need to be validated. And that's the coolness about what's happening in today's world. And the thing is, what makes the production value? Dancers right? You just turn the camera on and you dance for that camera. And it's so cool because not many people can do it. And it's such a beautiful art form. And so you just have to know, it's like, okay, it's not just about the dance. It's about doing the personality. It's about getting people to understand who I am as a dancer. That's the genius of it. And that's, and again, you could, and you can just do it. Yeah, the the uh, the barrier for entry has definitely been dramatically reduced uh, when it comes to that front. So, but Larry, man, I really appreciate your time. This has been a fascinating conversation. I know the 
I know those that are listening in right now have gotten a ton of value from it. Um, if people want to connect with you further, they want to learn more about what you're doing and the projects that you're working on, where can they find you? They can find us at EnsembleDigitalStudios.com or EnsembleDS.com, or you can follow me on Instagram at LShapDaddy. Love it. Love it. LShapDaddy. That's great. That's great. Well, listen, Larry, it's been a pleasure to, to uh, chat with you, and I appreciate you coming on. No worries. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to another episode of the My Creative District podcast with your host, Jesse Paul Smith. Here, we turn your passion into profit. Follow us on Facebook and stay tuned for another episode of the My Creative District podcast.